sing the songs and then uh, kind of go through them. And it, that's a, a great song that uh, Josh just led us in. Behold our God, he's seated on the throne. And uh, where, where is, uh, this, this is, uh, we're going to folks you a little for those on the internet for a minute. Uh, where is God's, where is Jesus Christ seated on the throne right now? He's up in heaven. Is he going to be coming back one day to sit on a throne on this earth? Absolutely. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 21, Jesus talks about when he will come back to this earth, he will literally be coming back as the King of kings and Lord of lords when he will sit on his throne in the millennial kingdom in Jerusalem. And uh, that's uh, Revelation 19, 11, all the way through Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Uh, Jesus is coming back to rule and reign one day right here on this earth. But uh, guess what, folks? Me and you are going up to heaven first, and we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Joel, chapter 3. Uh, I missed uh, part of the announcement, so Justin might have already discussed this, but uh, uh, we are going to have a membership class this coming Sunday at 1030 during the Sunday school hour in my office. So uh, any folks interested in joining the church, I know we've got a couple of families uh, that are, and folks, how about this morning? Um, <laughs> I don't know if you realized how much was going on this morning and what a blessing it was. Folks, we had eight different visitors, all adults this morning, uh, all from the area, all interested, and uh, several of them searching uh, for a church. And uh, folks, it's just God's doing some, some really good things. And uh, got to... Uh, talk with several of those families and uh, I did one of those dine with the pastor things so that's folks you, you got to stop praying for visitors because every time we get more visitors it just puts you back a few weeks so <laughs> sorry about that uh, but folks how, how great is that though and I'm thankful to the Lord that uh, he's bringing folks in uh, you know we're, we're seeing some folks saved and that that's great so uh, thanks for what you're doing folks and uh, uh, I mean that sincerely one of our uh, uh, dear ladies, who I won't mention by name, but sitting pretty close to the front, went up to one of those couples today. And folks, this is the kind of thing that makes this church happen. I was up there uh, by the visitor center, getting them to sign a commitment, or not, yeah, a commitment card. Uh, <laughs> that's the way I'm thinking, right? Uh, communication card, which could turn into a commitment card. But anyway, uh, and had, she had the wherewithal, came up and said, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so, and, -so and uh, look, you look like you might be a young married couple age. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, uh, how'd you like to come to Sunday school? You know, I'll get you over there. And they're like, oh, that's great. Here's the exact thing that that lady said. She said, that's wonderful. She said, I heard about it, uh, but I didn't know where it was. And, and folks, that, that's the kind of thing. We had another couple up front here, and... The gentleman said this in a fairly, he was joking, but, but I was so happy what he said. He says, he, he looks out, he sees me coming up the aisle, and he says, hey, hey, pastor, these folks won't let us go. They keep talking to us. And uh, I'm like, well, that's exactly what we want. And, and he was happy. She was happy. I mean, it, and, and it was just one couple after another, one person after another was introduced himself and just made folks feel at home. And, and, and I can't thank you enough for doing that. That's what I believe the Lord wants us to do. Love people, care about people. 
they're coming here it's scary for some it's intimidating to some they don't know what they're getting themselves into and uh, I want them to get into something good and uh, this is something good so thanks again for your love for people for uh, the way you treat folks it's it's just it's wonderful and it makes me very very I can't use the word proud of you but I'm really proud of you guys, <laughs> okay? I mean, I'm just thrilled to death what you're doing. So thank you so much. Well, Joel chapter 3. Um, I say this every Sunday night. I'm going to get you out by 7 o'clock every single time I lie. Um, I don't lie intentionally, but I honestly will, will, will shoot for 7 again. And uh, I'm looking forward to it tonight because we've got two or three messages left in Joel. So I've been praying about, Lord, what do you want us to do in the next series on Sunday night? So here's what's going to be coming. And uh, first of all, September, again, most of you are aware I'll be traveling for two weeks out of September. I haven't, I haven't missed a Sunday, I don't think, uh, uh, since I, I started here. And I have two conferences, prophecy conferences, that I'll be preaching one in uh, Minnesota and another one in Georgia in September. I had one out in California in October. I canceled that one due to the restrictions and I don't need a 14-day quarantine, so uh, I, I did cancel that one, which is the first time I've ever canceled a conference. Uh, then I have another one in Southern Illinois in October. So I just have three. I committed to those. The church knew about it when I, when I took this, that I just have to fulfill those obligations. And then we'll be in uh, the first week, I think in December, is the Pre-Trib Research Center Conference. It's where all, all the, the, the brains get together, if you will, and uh, about 500 brains get together and uh, we go through different dispensational topics and so forth. So I don't know if I may, uh, I may be here that Sunday, may not. We're still working on the planes. My wife says the plane tickets say no. All right, so that's that's the four times we'll be gone. But again, this was all things scheduled before you folks decided I should be here. So it's all on you, okay? <laughs> no, it's good to be here. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, a little bit uh, yucky on the weather, but it seems to be perking up a little bit. Anyway, Joel chapter 3, enough chit-chat. Let's get into it. So we've been, what we're going to do, we've got about three messages left. Oh, and you said, well, Brother Rich, what, what are you going to do after Joel? Here's uh, um, one thing that I don't, I've looked at the past messages that have been, or at least the, the general books that have been gone through before I came with the previous pastor, and I don't believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, first and second Timothy and Titus, to my knowledge, and Steve's been here a whole lot longer than I have, like 41 years, so I'll take his word for it. That's pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, historian, if you will. So we're going to go in first, second Timothy. Now you say, well, why that? It's pastoral epistle. Paul is basically telling Timothy and Titus what they should be doing as pastors, but there is a ton of good stuff in there. There's a great deal of doctrine. The first 10 verses, and I read through all three books this afternoon just to verify where we wanted to go, it is very politically incorrect. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 it's, gonna, it's got a little toe, toe smashing, but it's got a lot, a lot of real positive things. So first and second, Timothy, the pastoral epistles, we'll be going through that. We want to talk about church leadership. Uh, we've got 10 
wonderful, outstanding deacons right now. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, pastoral roles, deacons roles, how folks, what's the qualifications, all that kind of thing. Um, we actually were looking through the Constitution, and there's some things in there that are like, hmm, let's see how it measures up uh, uh, with Scripture. So it's like, let's uh, let's make sure we're all on the same page. We're on a doctrinal page. That's that's correct. So it's like makes perfect sense to go through it. So again, that's what's coming, and I'll leave it at that for tonight. All right, as I always like to say uh, here at Union Grove Baptist, we open up the Word of God and we peel God's Word. Tonight we're peeling God's prophetic Word one passage at a time. So I'm just going to give you a very basic outline of chapter 3, and then we're going to get into it. Now, folks, this is this some really exciting things that we're going to be looking at tonight. These are the kind of things, quite frankly, that people pay thousands of dollars to go to a prophecy conference to hear, and y'all get it for just the price of walking in the door. And uh, I'm serious, though. These... The kind of things that we give, they're not normally preached on in a lot of churches. It's considered heavy doctrine, but I don't consider anything heavy enough that it shouldn't be given to everybody. If God wrote it, we all need to know about it. So we're going to go through the, uh, the Joel chapter 3. I'll have two more messages on it. Uh, but tonight we're going to be looking at basically, and we might get up through verse 17. But we're talking about that seven-year horrible tribulation period. So that's basically the theme of the chapter is the tribulation program, at least through the first 17 verses. Then the first eight verses are talking specifically about the coming judgments that will be taking place during the tribulation period. So what we're going to be looking at, and I think we'll get through the first 17 verses, we're going to be looking at God is going to be giving us a picture of individuals, nations that have risen up against Israel and what he says the repercussions are going to be. In other words, these repercussions are coming that offenses have already taken place. So we'll be looking a little bit at the historical, basically the past. We'll be seeing things that are taking place in the present, and then certainly looking at the prophetic picture. All right? Past, present, prophetic pictures. Then we'll, we'll look at why God is upset with these basic nations that have gone against his people. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 makes it very clear that the Jewish people are God's chosen people. You don't mess with God's people and the judgment that he's talking about is extremely severe that we'll see in just a few moments. So he's going to tell these nations, here's why I'm going to wipe you out, literally. And then it's going to talk about how God is literally going to execute that judgment. And uh, then he's going to call. It's, it's kind of a, it's a very, I love this passage, verses 9 to 12. He's basically going, God is going to literally taunt the nations in the Bible. He's going to come after them. He's going to taunt them. He's going to say, basically bring it on, guys, and I'm going to take care of you. In, a, in the worst way possible, all right? And then we'll see how that all pan, uh, comes to pass. I almost said how it all pans out. Now, if you've been here for a while, you know why I don't like saying if it all pans out. For those that are, are a little fresh here, and I, always, I, I talked about a particular theological uh, group that, that is called Pan, P-A-N, theologians. Don't take notes on this. <laughs> They're pantheologians, and, you, and I heard that for the first time years ago. I'm like, what in the world's a pantheologian? 
when it comes to the end times. A pantheologian is one who believes in this doctrine. It will all pan out in the end, therefore I don't need to study it. That's pantheology, and I say to that, eh, no go. Uh, so I don't like to use the word pan. All right, and then uh, next week we're going to talk about Petra, the place where God will be hiding, if you will, what we believe, and I'll give you a very strong argument as to why the Jewish people, the one-third remnant from Zechariah 13, 8, and 9, where they will be hidden, why? And then the final message will be uh, uh, Joel 13, uh, 17 through 21 on the 1,000 year millennial kingdom, all preached by Joel 800 years before Christ, 2,800 years ago. All right, uh, I think there's a fairly new chart. We kind of spiced it up a little bit for tonight. So let's just basically get the concepts of what we're going to be looking at. We're actually going to be on the right side of the tribulation, the right side of the line, not the right side of, uh, the right side of the blue line tonight. But again, very quickly, we go back to when God created the heavens and the earth, approximately 4,000 B.C. Uh, so the earth, according to scripture, is 6,000 literal years old. Again, we've talked about that. Uh, as a review, there's two chapters in Genesis to prove how old the earth is. Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. This should, be, this should be like, yeah, we already know that. Uh, Genesis 5 and 11 are the two genealogies that literally date how, how uh, uh, the, the individuals, the men, when they had their children, and it's very easy to track the dates back to 4000 BC. Another for review, what is the most powerful verse in the scriptures to prove that God created everything in six literal days? No gap theories, no evolution. It's not in Genesis, it's in what book? Exodus, Exodus thank you. And that passage is Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. Very good. All right, see, we're getting it. I love it. All right. So, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 makes it very clear, according to God, that in six literal days, God created everything there is and all that in them is. All right? We go to the time of Christ. We talked a little bit about the Mosaic Covenant. We won't get into that tonight. Basically, that's the Old Testament law. The law ended shortly after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. The law was completed in Christ. We now live in the age of grace or the church age. Uh, what is going to end that church age? Everybody here that's been here more than one time knows about this. The rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 54. This age ends when we leave, when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, not down to the earth, in the clouds. We come up to see him, 1 Thessalonians 4, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. All right, that's coming. Will it happen in our generation? Whew. It's been 2,000 years that people have been looking for Jesus Christ to return to take us home. There are literally no signs in the scripture for that to happen. And all of a sudden, we kind of flip on the news the last year or two and start to see things that are taking place that I'm like, wow, Lord, I didn't think we'd see that while we're still here. Walking down the churches, never thought I'd see that in, our gen in my generation. I didn't think I'd ever see it while, uh, before the rapture. And then all of these things start to make sense. Satan has got to set the stage 
to try and overcome what God's going to do. So we've started to see these things. You're like, do you think uh, we're in the tribulation? Absolutely not. Do you think about all these serums and different things and the injections and the chips and all that? Is that the mark of the beast? Absolutely not. What is it? It's Satan setting up a counterfeit so when the real thing happens, everybody will be already ready to go with it. Folks, we're in a spiritual battle. We talked about it this morning. Every single day, every minute of our life, when we get up to the moment we go to bed, Satan is out there. The principalities and powers of Ephesians 6 are fighting us every moment as God's people. And it's not going to stop. So, I hate to say get used to it, but it's going to be there. And that's why we stand strong. That's why we uh, 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 do, our, do the right thing that we can. And again, we're not a political organization, but we have to do the right thing. We have to vote. God uses us to vote the right people into office. So uh, you figure out who that is. All right, enough said. Bottom line, the rapture is going to happen. God's going to take his people home to be with him, Christians. Shortly after the rapture of the church, an individual comes on the scene who makes a covenant with Israel for seven years, and that person is known in the Bible as Antichrist. Also known mostly in the Bible, he's only called Antichrist in 1 John. Every other place he is called something that starts with a B. What do they call him in the Bible? The Beast, very good. All right. So the beast comes on the scene, the Antichrist. He confirms a seven-year covenant with the Jewish people. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, what we're going to see, we're going to go into Joel tonight. Let's go to chapter 3. And uh, we're going to start. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We'll pray. And then we'll start splitting uh, the passages and make some sense. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I, God is saying, bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, not happened yet, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We'll show you where that is. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. Now he's, he's given the condemnation here. Here's what these nations have done. It's already happened. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And these are disgusting things that God has... They've done these things. They've scattered my people. They've, 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 they've destroyed the children of Israel. They, they've abused them. It's stuff that you go to jail for today. Verse 4, indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me, swiftly and speedily I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold. Uh, folks, this is not the part about the church that God's love is building. <laughs> this is the part where God says, mess, mess with my people. Hoo -hoo. It's not going to be pretty. All right, so verse 5 again, sorry. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have 
carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, basically in the south part of Arabia, to a people far off for the Lord has spoken. And now God's making a strong proclamation to these nations. Remember, this is future. This has not happened yet, but it's going to happen. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, this is the taunt. He's taunting the nations. He's not talking to the Jewish people. He's taunting these people that have come up against his own. Let the weak say, I am strong. Come on, you guys. You think you're so, you think you're so tough? This is literally what God's saying. He's taunting them. Bring it on. That's in our vernacular. Assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened. The nations. Think about that. Who is God coming after right now? The nations that have disrespected his people and himself. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness and great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will go dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heaven and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter to his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Father, as we open up this precious word, as we look into these future events, that are guaranteed to happen. Lord, I pray that those here in uh, our church tonight, those watching on the internet, that Lord, we would take the seriousness of what God is saying in this spectacular passage tonight. Lord, these things we know are going to happen. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us as your people to be prepared. Help us to prepare people for that which is to come by sharing the gospel that they may avoid these horrible judgments. And Father, uh, uh, for those of us that are saved, that know Jesus Christ is our Savior, might we get a compassion for souls tonight like never before to help folks avoid all these things that will come during these horrible judgments. And Father, anyone watching tonight that may never have trusted Christ, might they find him tonight. Would you please revive the saved and save the lost? In Jesus' name, amen. So just a quick little bit of setting the stage, if you will. Joel chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. For behold, in those days, we're talking about the seven-year tribulation period that is to come. Again, we're living in the church age. The rapture of the church will take place. And then the Antichrist makes his Packed with the Jewish people, things begin to click wrong. And God is talking about that seven-year time period. In those days, at that time, when he does what? I'm bringing back my Jewish people. It's exactly what he's saying. Now, we've talked about this a little bit about the regathering of Israel. There's two times God brings back the Jewish people to Israel. 
And we went through those passages. The easiest one to go to is Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, if you remember the, the, the vision of the dry bones, right? Joel is there. God's saying, look at, look at this valley of dry bones. It's the, and he tells us, he says, it's the nation of Israel. They're spiritually dead. We're going to wake up this dead Israel, if you will. We're going to start putting flesh on them. And in the middle of the chapter, it says this. They had no breath in them. They had no life. The regathering of Israel in unbelief. Is it happening? Folks, this is where, I, I mean, I just get so excited about this. In approximately A.D. 70, the Jewish people were scattered. And we're going to take a look at that. In fact, let's take a look at what happened. I will also gather all the nations, verse 2, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the Kidron Valley. We'll show you the map in a minute. And I will enter into judgment with them there. Why? God is saying because here's what these nations have done. Number 1, verse 3. They, those pagan nations, have done number one, they've cast lots for my people. In other words, they were selling them as slaves. They were auctioning them off. We already went to this. They've given a boy. They, they've taken a, 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 a boy, if you will, and as payment for a harlot. They've taken, they've stole the Jewish boys, and they've sold them as slaves so they could have a prostitute. They've sold a girl for wine. In other words, we're looking at a society, these nations that hate Israel, they've abused their people, they've scattered them, they've sold them for their own pleasures. And it's horrific. And God says, do you remember that I said in, in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 12, the Abrahamic covenant, that I will bless those who bless my people and I will do what to those who curse them? What will he do? He'll curse them. And God is making it very clear. Those nations that have messed with my people. It's over 2,000 years ago that they messed with the Jewish people. It was back in AD 70. And God says, I'm not forgetting. That's where we're going here. Josephus tells us about, remember, Josephus is a first century historian. He was not a saved guy. If uh, almost every college student that goes to Bible school has to read uh, the works of Josephus, as they're tremendous works, they're, they're felt to be fairly historically accurate. And here's what Josephus said during AD 70, what was going on. And he was there, literally saw it, wrote down his account. He said, in the Roman wars, the enemy chose out of the Jews the tallest and most beautiful and reserved them for the triumph. The rest above 17 years old, he put them in bonds and sent them to the Egyptian mines. Those under 17 were sold for slaves. And in Joel chapter 3, 800 years, if you will, before AD 70, when these took place, when the Jews were dispersed, when they were sold to other nations, he's saying, I'm coming to get you. God is not going to let this pass. And it took place. It's documented. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, what these heathen nations did with God's people. Sold them as slaves. Scattered them all over the known world. When did the Jewish people really start coming back to Israel? From 87 all the way up to the late 1800s, the Jewish people basically, there's a handful in Israel. 
And now God started to bring the Jews back in unbelief, the first gathering of his people. Folks, the Jewish people have to get back to Israel. And God, we talked about this a week or two ago, I can't remember. And God's drawn them back. About 7 million Jewish people have now returned to Israel. You say, why? Because God's calling them. You say, how? I don't know. But he's doing it. You say, you mean, are, are these all Christians that just want to get back to Israel and rejoice because God's there? Nope. They're not Christian at all. They're Jewish, not, at least 99% of the Jewish people returning just feel, if you ask them, they feel drawn to go back to the land. And God's got that big giant Jew, Jewish magnet out there, and they're coming back. So let's take a look, uh, basically, and it's, it's a little bit small on the screen, but uh, if you look towards kind of up in the right section, you'll see where it says the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is between, if you see the gold dome building, kind of right in the middle of the upper part of the screen, that's the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Shrine, where God's first and second temple stood. You go across the Kidron Valley, you begin to ascend the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley is also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there's two major things that are going to take place in the end times after we've been raptured and the tribulation kicks in. There is the major battle of what? Starts with an A. Armageddon. Armageddon is going to be a final battle. When Jesus Christ comes down, he infiltrates all the nations that have gathered. We'll show you the verse of Zechariah chapter 14 verse 2 is really where it's found. All the nations are going to come up against Jesus. That's craziness, right? But it's going to happen. He's going to go to the, uh, out there. He's going to kill all those people. Then he's going to be drawing down the remnant that is left into the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, where the final judgments will be taking place before he sets himself up as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the millennium. So the Kidron Valley, very important place, Valley of Jehoshaphat. All right, again, a little small, but here's the concept. In A.D. 70, there are a handful of Jewish people that remain. They're scattered. They're sent all over the world. Folks, they're still Jewish people scattered all over the known world. And now, uh, as of 2017, actually, I should update that, but as of 2020, there's approximately 7.5 million Jewish people that have returned to the land. Just like God said... To those watching tonight that are replacement theology people saying that the church has replaced Israel, of course that's not what we believe here at Union Grove Baptist Church, we take the Bible literally, but for my replacement theology friends, my supersessionist theology friends, would you please explain to me why God has pulled 7.5 million Jewish people from across the lands, as he literally said he would do, and put them right back in Israel? That's pretty compelling. Just a thought. All right. Joel chapter 3 verse 4. Indeed, what have you to do with me? God saying, O Tyre and Sidon. These were the Phoenicians. We'll show you the map on the next slide. And all the coasts of Philistia. God is getting after Tyre and Sidon who treated the Jewish people with absolute disrespect. 
God, on the next, next uh, center of the screen there, God gave the Phoenician land to Israel. Joshua took it in the, in the battles of the Old Testament. God ordered Israel, the children of Israel, to drive the pagans from the land. God was very specific, by the way, about getting the pagans out of the, out of the land in the Old Testament. When they failed, they being the Jewish people, failed to fulfill God's command, it always led to bad results. God said, you clean it out. It's a, I mean, in our culture, it's like almost beyond what we can handle as Christians. But God said to the Jewish people, you go in there, get your swords, kill every single person. Don't leave anybody. And we're like, whoa, I mean, that, that just doesn't sound warm and fuzzy to me. And it's not warm and fuzzy. God was very specific. Wipe them out. Why? Because there were pagans. They didn't believe in the Lord and God wanted it cleaned out. Tough stuff. Well, God ordered Israel to drive them out, but the Israels failed to obey. Judges chapter 2. The Philistines attacked King Jehoram and killed all of his family, save Jehoahaz, his youngest son. Folks, when you leave one bad egg, so to speak, it destroys everything. And because they failed to wipe out the, the, the nation, if you will, of these individuals, they rose up and they reaped havoc on Israel. So where are we talking about? Well, we're looking at the land of Israel. You see the Sea of Galilee kind of in the bottom part of the picture. Tyre and Sidon up, if you will, in the land of Phoenicia. I got a little better picture here. So if you look up there, we see Tyre, uh, Sidon at the top of the map, Tyre about uh, uh, in the top third, and all that land was known as Phoenicia back in the day. And Joel's saying, these lands have attacked my people, they've treated them with disrespect, they've sold them into slavery, they've, they've used boys, uh, uh, sold boys for prostitution, they've sold children to get wine, and I will not tolerate that. And folks, that's way back in the B.C. We're like 3,000 years ago, and yet God's saying, I'm going to, <laughs> you're not going to get away with it. The lands will be judged. Let's go to the next section, Joel chapter 3. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? God's saying, okay, you don't like me, you don't like my people. And here's where I was kind of being a little bit sarcastic, if you will. God's saying, come on, you want to come at me? Do it. Will you retaliate against me? But if you do retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Now he hits them with other things they've done. You have taken my silver and my gold and have carried it into your temples, my prized possessions. Where was God's prized possessions at? The, the what? Starts with a T. Temple! The temple, right where you saw that gold dome building, which is now the Muslim shrine, the second temple was on that spot. I'm going to go back there for a second. Because for some of you, this may be new. You see where that gold dome building is? I'm going to go off camera for our own folks for a minute. Right up here. That is known as the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim shrine that went up about 900 A.D. Or 700 A.D., sorry. And... Before that, the first and second temples stood on that very spot. 
And God is saying when the Romans came in in AD 70 and they destroyed that temple, they took all his possessions and they carried them off to, where did he take them off to? The Romans, give you a hint. <laughs> where would they have taken them? To Rome, all right? And that's exactly what happened. So I'm going to go down to, uh, sorry, I'm going to skip. Some of you have already seen this picture. Do you know what that is? It is the Arch of Titus. It is in Rome. In AD 80, <laughs> the Romans come into Jerusalem in AD 70. They plunder God's temple. They steal his treasures. They take all of the artifacts out of that second temple. They burn the temple to the ground. They destroy it. They chop up many of the Jewish people and they scatter the rest of them. And now, 800 years before that happened, Joel is saying, you're going to mess with my people? You're going to scatter my people? God's going to judge you. And that's exactly what's going on. In AD 80, and why am I showing you the Arch of Titus? Because that sits in Rome today. I've been there, I took these pictures. Why is that important? Because guess what's inside, if you've seen the picture, what's underneath the arch? And here's what is underneath the arch, one of the frescoes, one of the pictures. Well, look at there. It looks like a Jewish menorah to me. Now, I don't know what all the other little vessels and things are up there. The artist wasn't really the best, maybe, on some of the things that they stole out of God's temple. But boy, there's no mistake in that menorah. Why did that Arch of Titus get built in AD 80? Boy, try to say that three times. I can't even get it out once. All right? It's documenting. It's absolutely positively documenting what God said would happen. The Romans come in, they destroy the temple, they stole all his treasures, and they took them and put them in their own temples. Did that happen? Oh, yeah, it happened. Uh, who else did that? Let's go back to the first temple period, the Babylonians. By the way, where's Babylon located? In what country? Hmm. Iran, Iraq, do those names like have any familiar news to us? Oh yeah. God has made it very clear. Also, and we, we could go to another passage, but we're not going to go to Revelation tonight. Revelation chapter 18 talks about it, the last half of the seven-year tribulation period. Babylon is going to be destroyed. You say, wait a minute, this happened thousands of years ago and we're still looking to the future when God's going to take out and destroy Babylon in Revelation 18? The answer is, I'll speak it in a very scholarly word, yep, <laughs> it's coming, okay? How can you not love this? It's just incredible. All right, let's go back here. We're doing okay in time. Okay, so uh, verse 4 again indeed, or verse 5. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples, your heathen horrible temples, my prized possession, also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them from their borders. Folks, that happened in 586 B.C. When the, when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. It happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the second temple. And God's saying, judgment's coming. And he's not kidding. T 
Tyre, if we went through the historical things, some of the things that happened, Ezekiel prophesied about it. Nebuchadnezzar actually destroyed uh, Tyre at one point, left a remnant, so they actually got beat up, if you will, uh, way back in uh, 500 uh, B.C., but they didn't destroy it. So in the middle, if you read it with me, it says a remnant escaped to an island and rebuilt their city. They thrived for about 240 years until Alexander the Great from Greece plundered their city again in 332 B.C. Tyre was rebuilt and destroyed again in A.D. 1291 by the Muslims. What did God say in the passage in Joel? Yeah, uh, you think you want to retaliate against me? What did God say he would do if they built themselves up and retaliated? It's going to knock you down again. And folks, that's exactly what God has done. Do you see how intricate the Word of God is? When you start to see it and you start to understand it and you start to see, what was God talking about destroying Tyre and Sidon? And we just keep reading. We don't get it. We don't understand the history. And all of a sudden we go back and it's like, wow, here's some history that documents that God said, you mess with my people, Tyre and Sidon. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take you out. And if you rebuild, I'm going to take you out again. If you rebuild, I'm going to take you out again. That's exactly what's happened historically. It's amazing. I guess it's called the Word of God, right? All right, Joel prophesied that these people would be sold to Israel, who in turn sold them, if you will, uh, the, the people from Tyre and, Syra, or, uh, Tyre and Sidon to the Sabians. And uh, I'm like, Where's, who are the Sabians? Well, the Sabians, if you look on our little map, you can see Israel in the middle. It's basically in southern Arabia. So they sold uh, these individuals out of their land and got rid of them. But, of course, they came back and built again. All right, so let's get into the prophetic picture here as we kind of start to wrap it up. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8 or 14. So the angel spoke with me, said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous, zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. Now, Zechariah was written back around 500 B.C. And Zechariah made it very clear. Here's how God feels about the people of Israel. I am zealous for them. And I've given this illustration. I stole it from my good friend, Jimmy DeYoung. And uh, he said, here's his little illustration. He's like, my wife Judy's back there selling books right now. And she's going to be at the table. And... Uh, if I see one of you good-looking guys going back by my Judy, <laughs> he said, I'm going to get aggressively possessive. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but what's he illustrating? He's like, I love my wife back there. I, I, I want her to be taken care of, and I'm aggressively possessive. Don't mess with my wife. Isn't that a good illustration? Because that's exactly what God says. Do not mess with Israel. I'm aggressively possessive for her. Touch her. If you do, <laughs> yeah, you got Jimmy DeRion's wrath coming after you. No, you got God's wrath coming after you. That's exactly what he said. He said, Brother Rich, that's Old Testament. You think we still ought to, ought to love Israel today? Do you think we still should treat Israel with respect? Well, see, Genesis chapter 12 says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Did God stop his promise to the people of Israel? Hmm. You want to test them? I don't. 
No, we don't mess with Israel. We don't mess with our Jewish friends. Zechariah 2.8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. He who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of his eye. We use that uh, uh, um, phrase a lot. Ah, they're, I love them. They're the apple of my eye. We usually say it about our kids or something, right? And they are. We love them. We care about them. They're the apple of my eye. They're my joy. What happens when you take a speck of something and you get it in your eye? You been there? Oh, I mean, oh, man, that hurts. And it gets in, if you will, the center of the cornea, which is the apple of the eye, so to speak, from the literal language. And it irritates it and it hurts it. And God says, don't you become an irritant with my people who are the apple of my eye. I like that. You see, God uses illustrations that even the simplest of us <laughs> can understand. Don't mess with them. Don't become an irritant in the apple of my eye. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we just quoted it. Now the Lord had said to Abram, the Abrahamic covenant, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land. Remember what I said. Every time we see the word the land, what's he talking about? What place? Israel. Okay? Get out of your country. I'll take you to a land, Israel, that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Israel, children of the, the Jewish people, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Irrevocable covenant. We already went through what happened with the Romans. All right, let's move on. Verse 7, Behold, I will raise them. I'm going to raise the Jewish people out of the place to which you have sold them. And will return your retaliation upon your own head. God is setting the stage for the tribulation period. I'm going to draw my Jewish people like he is doing right now. Do you understand how unbelievable almost this is? That we are living in the, in the time period when God is drawing his people back. Which he said was going to happen 2,800 years ago. And we're watching it happen. And I'm like... How can we not get how true this is? How can we not see that God is literally doing what he promised to do? Even if you say, oh, I don't believe the Bible was written thousands of years ago. I think they wrote it in the first century. All right. Is God doing it? Yep. He's doing exactly what he said. It isn't something that somebody wrote down today. And said, oh yeah, God's drawing his Jewish people back. Let's write something in a book about, well, this must be... No, he wrote this 2,800 years ago and it's happening today. I will sell your sons, you uh, rotten nations, if you will, and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. They will sell them to the Sabians. You do it to me, I'm doing it right back. To a people afar off, for the Lord has spoken. All right, now we get to the final PowerPoint piece for tonight. Proclaim this among the nations. Weeks, We talked about the locust plague. And God had shown to Joel that there's this horrible locust plague, these horrible judgments that were happening back in 800 B.C. They're going to be repeated in the future. And now God looks at these nations after the rapture of the church and he says this once again. Pro proclaim it among the nations. Prepare for war. Listen, you call up Iran, you call up Iraq, you call up Babylon, you call up China, you call up Japan. 
You call up uh, Libya. You call up Lebanon. You call up Syria. You call up every single nation that has hurt my people, Israel, my Jewish people. Call them up and you tell them, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Get Hezbollah. Get Hamas. Get ISIS, who's ever left. Call them up. Call them to war. And then what you tell them, you wake these people up. And let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. You tell them, listen, you think you got a big army now? It's going to be so fierce against you, you better go out to your fields, grab your farm implements, and start beating them into weapons. Because I'm coming for you. God is not kidding. He's coming for them, and he's going to take them out. And he's taunting them and saying, listen, all you nations that think you can take out my people Israel, you've been trying to do it for thousands of years. Pay day someday. By the way, that's one of the most famous sermons ever written. Payday someday. We'll talk about that later. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spear. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Listen, get all your men. You're going to need the weakest. You're going to need the strongest. If you think you're going to fight me, if you think you're going to take me out, you're not. Assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So what's going to happen as we close for tonight? Revelation chapter 19. And I'm just going to go there. We've got three minutes. I'm going to read just part of it. Go to Revelation chapter 19. We've read most of this in the past, but it's a... I never can get enough of this. I love this chapter. Revelation chapter 19, here's exactly what God says is going to happen. We're up in heaven with Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church has taken place. The seven-year tribulation period is now coming to an end. Jesus Christ is mounting up, as we'll read in just a moment, on a white horse, all his saints, all the Christians, all the tribulation saints, all the Old Testament saints will mount up on white horses. And here's what happens, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, speaking to Jesus. But he said to me, see that you not do it. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. The angels talking, if you will, uh, to John. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven open, John says, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, speaking to Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of Christ. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. These are God's people who have been martyred, died, or raptured. And in the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth and his mouth alone goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh and a name written. Can you say it with me? King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. 
that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and all the flesh of the people, free and slave, both small and great. What is this battle? It is the final battle of Armageddon. Jesus Christ comes down. He, he, he wipes out all the nations that have gathered at the valley of Megiddo, the, where, uh, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Armageddon, all synonymous terms. And he takes them out. With what? The sword that proceeds from his mouth. The word of God. You say, well, how do you think he's going to do that? Something like this. Here he comes. All the nations are gathered, Zechariah 14, verse 2, and here's exactly what something like this that he'll say. Die! And it's over. Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that the blood will rise up to the horse's bridles. He just wipes them out, the word. Folks, think about that. Think about it. Why do we talk about prophecy? Why do we open up the Word of God and go through what God has done, is doing, and what He is literally going to do? Why do we go here? Here's exactly why. Because outside the walls of this church, and potentially even maybe someone who's here tonight, there are thousands and thousands and millions and millions and billions of people who have never trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And I've given this little phrase as our mantra. This church, Union Grove Baptist Church, is the church that God's love is building. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean is just as simple as can be. If we truly love people, what is the best thing we can do for them? Tell them about a sale at Kmart? Tell them where you just got the best deal on a new car? Tell them about uh, uh, the excitement of a new wedding. All those things are great, by the way. You should get excited about them, especially the Kmart sales. <laughs> Folks, if we can get excited about that, if we can ex get excited about sports teams and all the other things we love going to, recreation and all those things, how much more is it so important to get excited, scream and shout about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in our hearts? Are you glad you're saved tonight? Are you glad that Jesus loves you? I am. Are you glad that he changed your life from being, a, a, for some of us, an absolute train wreck to where we have hope, we have purpose, we have a new life in Jesus Christ? And folks, there are thousands and yea, millions of people, yea, billions of people all across this world that are going to die and go to that lake of fire, and we're the only ones that have the message. Is that motivating? You're like, whoa, that's a lot of work. It is. It's a lot of work. And God's asked us to do it. Finally, if you're watching tonight and you're one of those people that if you were to die right now, you have no idea where you'd go. Very quickly, in just a few quick things, let me tell you how you can know for sure if you died, you go to heaven. The Bible makes it very clear, super clear, that every single one of us lacks his righteousness. We're, we're, we're sinners. Romans 3.23 tells us we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. I'm a sinner. Folks, you're a sinner. You can't get away from it. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. God just made it very crystal clear that we've sinned. We have. And God made it very clear, just like uh, those that we went through tonight, those nations that rose up and fought against God, he said there's going to be retribution. There's going to be judgment for you to go against me. And God says the same thing to me and you. He said if you 
die in your sin as a sinner there's going to be retribution and you will pay forever in an awful place called hell revelation 21 8. you say well brother rich that's not very comforting no it's not at all but there is some comforting news in the word of god in titus chapter 3 it says not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he'll save us you say what do you mean what i mean is jesus christ god's son he came down from heaven god himself comes down takes on the form of a bodily form in jesus christ jesus lives on his earth some 33 years what happens to him he finally goes to the cross he's crucified he's killed no he gave his life why because he loves you and why why do we why do we need jesus and here's why we know we're sinners, we know we're condemned, and the only hope of eternal life, and it's a sure hope, by the way, the only hope of eternal life is to take your life and give it to Jesus Christ and accept his free gift of salvation. Isn't that wonderful? For God so loved the world, each one of us, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever, anyone, anyone watching, anyone in this room tonight, anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ, Accept his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for their sin. Trust in him. We can't do a thing except trust Jesus. Have you taken his free gift of salvation? It's so serious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, this wonderful book you've given to us, these 66 books, are so jam-packed with things that you have done, are doing, and will do. And Lord, that's why we come together every single week open up this precious book and find a new nugget that you want to give to us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, not just to learn the word, but have it affect our lives. Might we walk out of here tonight charged up, excited, motivated to tell folks about Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for a wonderful morning. All the visitors you brought here this morning, Lord, thank you so much for these dear folks that have come. And Father, I pray that uh, you'd help us as your people to keep at it, keep inviting folks Keep telling the gospel. Keep inviting folks to church so they can hear the greatest news ever given to man. If you're there watching or here right now, and you say, Brother Rich, I, 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 I don't think I've trusted Christ, and I want to get that settled. Well, right there where you are, whether you're in your home, in a car, wherever you are, why don't you just tell the Lord in your own words something like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. I know I've done wrong. But I understand that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for my sins. He was buried. Three days later, he rose victorious to prove he was God. And I heard that verse tonight again, that you loved me so much that you died for me, and I need to accept you and your free gift of salvation by trusting in what you did on the cross, and I'm accepting that free gift tonight. Father, would you please seal decisions in Jesus' name. Amen.